you haven't been with us this summer, we are working our, working our way through a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you have a Bible, uh, I welcome you to open up to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to focus on verses 17 through 21 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the Purex, and the passage is also printed for you in the worship guide, so you could also just follow along there. So where have we been so far in this series? Well, just for a quick review, especially for those of you who haven't been with us, this letter, as I said, was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had visited the city of Philippi in about 52 AD or so, and he began to talk about the good news of Jesus. He helped form a church in the city of Philippi, and as was his uh, custom, he then moved on to help establish more churches throughout the Roman Empire. You might remember the one cool detail that uh, Philippi was the first European city in which Paul proclaimed the gospel. So now we are flash forward uh, 10 years, and Paul writes this letter to that church in Philippi to encourage them in their faith and to thank them for their support of him. You also might remember the crucial detail of where Paul is writing from. The Apostle Paul is under house arrest He's not knowing what the outcome of his fate will be, whether he'll be executed or whether he will be released. And so, for obvious reasons, that's really important for understanding the context of this letter and where the apostle is coming from in writing. Now, what we talked about last week as we got into chapter 3 was this idea of how discipleship, that is, the, the following Jesus, becoming more like him, is a process. We saw how the Apostle Paul himself said that, I have not yet arrived. Discipleship is this ongoing process. We are all in process. And he um, encourages us with this really profound wisdom. He says, the key to discipleship, one of the keys, is to forget what is behind and to focus on what is ahead. And that leads us into our verses this morning, 17 through 21. So let me read those verses, and then we'll get into it. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things." But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, our prayer is simple. Show us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Maybe you've heard the saying, it's usually offered as a word of wisdom, maybe a word of challenge, and it goes something like this, be careful of becoming so heavenly-minded that you are of no earthly good. 
Have you ever heard a saying like that that's been expressed in some form? Be careful of becoming so heavenly-minded that you are of no earthly good. It's a common saying that gets expressed, particularly um, in church circles. So if you're outside of the church, maybe you haven't heard such a phrase. But even outside of the church, this is somewhat of a common phrase that maybe you have heard. And I guess my question for you as we start this morning, when you hear something like that, what what is your initial response? What's your initial reaction? In other words, how how does that statement, that word of wisdom, warning, challenge, how, how does it hit you? How does it maybe resonate with you or not resonate with you? I think maybe there are at least, largely speaking, two different big reactions. One could be, I don't know what you're talking about. It's impossible to become so heavenly-minded. You can't be too heavenly-minded, so I don't even agree with it. The other side of it could be, yeah, I know exactly uh, what is behind that statement. I agree with it. I've seen it in my own life, or I've seen it in the lives of others. They seem to be so spiritual, so focused on heavenly things that they are of no earthly good or help. Which is it? Which direction should we go? Well, I think as we work through these verses together this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to help provide some balance. He's going to, I think, help us to be able to answer that question with wisdom and with discernment and understanding in a way that is actually really helpful to how we live our lives. But there's this balance, right? Or maybe this tension. We're trying to find the balance but this tension that we run into even every day in our regular lives. We want to pursue Jesus. We want to focus on spiritual things or heavenly realities, whatever language, vocabulary we use. But at the same time, we want to be able to make a difference in the world around us, don't we? So that's kind of the tension that we're dealing with. And the fact of the matter is, is that so often we struggle with that. We don't know how to make sense of it. We, we lack discernment. We lack understanding in how to actually live into that tension and reality. So what I want to do this morning as we um, look at, at this, this passage is we're going to first focus on what it means to live from an earthly perspective. And then we'll come back to, okay, what does it mean to actually live from a heavenly perspective? Because as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, Discipleship is a process. And again, that word discipleship, what we mean by that is the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process of following Jesus and becoming more like him. It is a process. It's living into who God intends for us to be. It doesn't happen overnight. We don't arrive, as the Apostle Paul said last week. And discipleship involves living with a heavenly perspective. So what does that mean? Well, let's talk about what it first means to live with an earthly perspective. You see where Paul uh, says this, where he's talking about it in particular. He says that in in verse uh, 17, their end is destruction, their God is their, verse 19, I'm sorry, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, first of all, who is Paul talking about? Well, let's back up, because in verses 17 through 18, Paul gives the Philippians a call. He says to 
follow his example. Not only necessarily his example, but also the examples of others that he has pointed them to. Maybe two of those examples would be people that we have met in this letter that Paul has already talked about and held up as examples, Timothy, Epaphroditus. So maybe these are two of the particular people that Paul has in mind. Now, how does that strike you? Right off the bat, verse 17, the section beginning where we're looking at, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Strike you as maybe a little bit arrogant, make you nervous. You think to yourself, uh, I could never tell somebody to follow my example. It just sounds like it would be over the top, like it would be arrogant. But I, I want you to realize something here. For Paul, this is the opposite of arrogance. Because think about the vulnerability that we've already seen from him in this letter. Even just the section of scripture we looked at last week, verses uh, 1 through 16 of chapter 3. Paul himself says, I haven't already obtained the goal of knowing Jesus fully. I have not yet arrived. And at other points in a letter, he's hinted at his um, understandable uh, tension and um, worry about his circumstances. He's under house arrest, remember? And so Paul has, at different points, brought us into his vulnerability. Paul is, has manifested humility. And so when Paul says, follow my example, included in that is his example of humility. And humility is one of the major themes of this letter. Uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And those verses are powerful. Those verses, um, we talked about it at the time, um, are thought to be maybe an ancient hymn or some kind of poem that was read or sung in the early church. And those verses highlight, essentially, the story of Jesus, his coming to earth, his sacrificial life and death, and ultimately his resurrection. And Paul highlights the theme of humility even before he gets into those verses in the beginning of chapter 2. He's calling the Philippians, these followers of Jesus, to a life of humility. And how does that translate? It's a life that considers the interests of others more important than your own. And then he goes into the story of Jesus as the great paradigm or example. And so when Paul says here in verse 17 to follow his example, it's not a statement of arrogance. It's a statement of humility. Because what kinds of things have we seen from Paul so far through this letter? Well, one of those things has been humility. So when Paul says, follow my example, included in that is, follow my example of humility. So it's not arrogance. Paul can point to himself and others. Remember, Timothy and Epaphroditus, two individuals that he held up in chapter 2 as examples to follow, he was holding them up because of their humility. That was the purpose why, that was the reason why he was explicitly mentioning those two. So he says, follow my example, the examples of others who are, are walking this life of humility. And then he contrasts that with another group. Who is this group that Paul has in mind? He tells the Philippians, I have told you, often told you, and now tell you even with tears who they are. They walk as enemies of the cross the end is, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It's not exactly clear 
who Paul has in mind. It could be, and it probably at least includes a group that we would call the Judaizers. So a weird title, right? Weird label. Uh, We talked about the Judaizers two weeks ago, I think. The Judaizers were this group of people um, that would infiltrate the church. It's not clear as to how much they had infiltrated the church in Philippi. It's not even clear that they had yet were yet inside the church. But there was this pressure coming from somewhere, this line of thinking that, okay, Jesus is great. You have to have some kind of faith in Jesus to have relationship with God. But that's really, at the end of the day, not enough. You also kind of have to be like Jewish. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow Jewish customs and laws. And so basically, the final conclusion of that logic is it's Jesus plus this other stuff that's really important. And Paul says, no, no, that is anti-gospel. That's contrary to the Christian faith because at the heart of the Christian faith is the truth that relationship with God comes through faith in Jesus alone, not plus anything else. And so this Judaizers, these Judaizers, this group would have at least been part of this group that Paul has in mind, these enemies of the cross. And he's using, he contrasts his own lifestyle and teaching with this other group. But let's now focus in on the whole reason we're doing this. Let's focus in on that phrase, they have their minds set on earthly things. What do you think that means? What do you think it means that they have their minds set on earthly things? Well, as we walk through this passage over the next several minutes, I think it's possible that at least for some of you, you're going to come to see that what you think or what you've always thought Paul meant by some of these things is actually not what he meant. And I also want to point this out. It's a good opportunity to do so. Why in the world do I stand up here preaching the Bible every week? Why, do I, like, why am I so careful, even at the beginning of every message, and for those of you who have been here from the beginning of the series up till now, you hear a recap, a review, you hear the context every week. Why do we do that? Because it's so, so important. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation of himself. God has spoken to us through his word, and we love God's word, and we want to hear from God because we desperately need his voice. We desperately need his perspective, and we take it seriously. We really want to know what it means in its context, and so that's what we're doing this morning, and we do every week, and I hope that as that happens this morning, that it will maybe challenge some of you, enlarge your perspectives. Earthly things, what does Paul mean? We could think that what Paul means is you should retreat from the world. You should retreat from earthly things. Have no involvement with the things of the world. Retreat and just simply be focused on spiritual things, heavenly realities, whatever that might mean. That's not the context under which the Apostle Paul is operating. Now, we have to do a little bit of biblical theology here. Biblical theology is the study of the exploration of the story of the Bible as a whole as it unfolds throughout the story of Scripture. Um, So biblical theology really sets the big picture context for us as we 
study a passage of the Bible as we're doing this morning. And everyone, well, biblical theology is always important, but there come times especially where we have to really step back and say, okay, to understand that, what, the, what is the scope of the Scripture as a whole? How does it inform our understanding of whatever it is that we're talking about? And here, the question is really this. Is Paul telling us to be life-denying? Is he telling us to be otherworldly? What, what is his challenge exactly? What is it about this group of people that is so evil in terms of them being focused on earthly things. Well, you have to realize something. What is heaven? Where is heaven? Biblically speaking, heaven is where God dwells. That's heaven. Heaven is where God dwells. And so we we can't necessarily say heaven is up there somewhere. Heaven is where God is. And so go back to the beginning of the biblical story, the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. Um, we, we would say that those first couple stories of chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, why was everything so right? Why did, was everything functioning in the way that it was meant to function? It's because heaven and earth were joined together in harmony in the way that it was meant to be. That was God's purpose from the beginning. God was present with Adam and Eve. He was present with the humans. They had an intimate relationship together. Heaven and earth were joined together. But then what happens? The human beings run away from God. There's separation, and heaven and earth are separated in a sense. And that's not the way it was supposed to be. And that's why throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, The flow of direction is always heaven to earth, heaven to earth, heaven to earth. We tend to operate in the opposite way. We think about going up to be with Jesus. We think about us reaching Jesus. But in the biblical story, it's always the exact opposite. The flow of direction is always from heaven to earth. So what does God do? God tabernacles among his people. Heaven comes to earth in that form. The temple The whole point of the temple in the Old Testament is for God's presence, heaven, to be represented on the earth. We're getting hints of it throughout the Old Testament. And then what happens in the person of Jesus? In a profound and powerful way, heaven comes flooding down into the earth. And then skipping ahead to the end of the biblical story in Revelation, the very end, what is the flow of direction? We have a vision. We have a picture of heaven descending to join the earth back to the way that God had intended it to be from the very beginning. Now, you're, you may be thinking, and I understand it, like, what in the world is going on here? This is, sounds very interesting, but how is this relevant to my life? Just bear with me, okay? I'm, I'm hoping that we're creating a context that, that will be helpful for us understanding this. So all that to say, when Paul says, don't focus on earthly things, he's not saying deny the goodness of what God has made. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying earth, world, physical stuff, bad, spiritual stuff, good. That's not the contrast that he's making. What Paul is talking about is perspective. That's that's really what it comes down to. And the question is this, do you have a heavenly perspective or an earthly perspective? In other words, what's your frame of reference? How do you interpret whatever you encounter in your life. How do you encounter or how do you interpret life 
itself. And Paul gives us some cues on what it looks like to live with an earthly perspective about this group that he talks about. He says their God is their belly. What does that mean? They like to eat a lot? Well, actually, that probably is included in this. Probably includes, it possibly includes a form of gluttony, but it goes beyond that. What is clear is that this group that Paul is talking about is that they live to fulfill their cravings. They live for self, is another way of understanding this. Um, in, a, in a book, In the Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, the, the author who wrote that book gives five reasons why Rome collapsed, why the Roman Empire went down. And one of his reasons was this, because of their mad craze for pleasure. Because of their mad craze for pleasure. Their God was their belly. They lived to fulfill every craving, every desire that they had. So the point of life was self-satisfaction. That's what Paul's highlighting. And so when it, what he means by living from an earthly uh, mindset is that we live for self. Our reference point, our frame of reference is horizontal rather than vertical. And here's what happens when that happens. Our frame of reference is meant to be vertical. God is ultimately meant to be our reference point. We'll talk more about this, but when we focus on heavenly realities, it means that we have a vertical reference point. And that helps us to inter interpret everything on the horizontal plane. But when we're set on earthly things, we lose the vertical reference point, and our reference point becomes horizontal, ultimately becomes ourself. And what we tend to do is we elevate all the things on the horizontal plane, which many of them are good things. See, here's the clear distinction. Many of them are really, really good things created by God for us to enjoy. But the earthly mindset, what it does is it takes those good things and it elevates them to an ultimate place, to ultimately to that vertical reference point, even though it's really horizontal, and we worship those things. And they become the things that inform our sense of purpose, our sense of identity, our sense of meaning. And we begin to live with a mad craze for pleasure. We worship our cravings. We worship our appetites. Is Paul being otherworldly? Is he being life-denying? He's not. He's not at all. He actually wants to protect us. He wants to protect us. Because when we are living with the earthly perspective, when we are living to fulfill all of our cravings and our appetites, what happens is that we become slaves. We become slaves. As we said, we, we look to all of these things, whatever they may be, to really satisfy the deep longings of our heart. And, and they can't. They, they don't because that, that's not how it was set up by God. But this is what we do. And what happens is we latch on to one of them, whatever it might be. You know, you could fill in the blank. What is it for you right now that you feel like you're really just feeding the, the God of your belly, the appetite, you're, you're pursuing the cravings of your heart. What is that thing? Well, what happens is there eventually comes a point where you realize, wait a second, that's not 
fulfilling me. I don't feel so satisfied right now. And so what you do is you either press into it harder or you move on to the next thing. This is a life of slavery. Paul wants to protect us. He wants for us lives of freedom and lives of liberation in which we know Jesus, in which we are worshiping Jesus, and that helps us to make sense of everything that we encounter on the horizontal plane. And rather than elevating those things to a place of worship, we're able to enjoy them for the good that God gave them to us for. And so be skeptical of the earthly perspective. Be skeptical of the earthly mindset. Find your identity in this. Do this and you'll be happy. There could be truth in some of those things, but I want to encourage you to be skeptical. Don't become a slave so easily. Don't allow others to control your lives. What does it mean to live with a heavenly perspective then? Let's come back to that question. That's really the question that we're ultimately after. Paul uses this language um, in verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. What does Paul mean when he uses that phrase, that language? Well, I want to take you back for a moment to chapter 1, verse 27. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and flip back there. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You may or not remember, if you were here, um, as we were talking about that verse several weeks ago, we said that the Greek word that's translated manner of life can also mean citizen, can also mean citizen. It's where we get our word for politics. So it can also be translated, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. This is the same word. It's the same uh, idea that Paul is talking about now here in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, Paul is speaking the language of the Philippians. See, here's where context becomes incredibly important and helpful and meaningful. Paul is speaking the language of the Philippians. For us, it might be confusing. All right, what does it mean to be a citizen? For the Philippians, right away, they would have grabbed a hold of that and said, oh, I see what Paul's doing here. You see, when Paul says to be, citizen, be citizens of heaven, you have to remember that Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, it's been a while since we talked about this. It was the first week of our series we talked about this fact of how Philippi was a Roman colony. So think about this. Located some 800 miles east of Rome, it was surrounded by other territories that weren't necessarily colonies of Rome, that had no connection in the same way to Rome. But the people in Philippi had a legal status as Roman citizens. So it was a Roman outpost, if you will, of Roman life. And what that means is that it was governed by Roman law, they practiced Roman customs. They would have dressed like people in Rome. And so if you visited Philippi from Rome, sure, there would have been differences in terms of geography, but there would have been so many similarities that you would have felt at home to a certain extent. And Philippi prided itself on being a Roman colony. 
because it offered them honor and, and privilege. It offered them Roman citizenship. So what Paul is doing here is he's playing off of their pride. He knows that the people to whom he is writing were prideful, not necessarily always in a bad sense, but they were prideful about this fact that they were Roman citizens, that they were connected to Rome in this way. They tried their best in Philippi to order their civic life after Rome. They tried to match what they were doing after Rome. And so Philippi really was a miniature of Rome. And so Paul's playing off of this pride. They would have understood the idea of higher citizenship. Starting to make some sense now of why Paul would use this word and why it doesn't necessarily jump out at us right away. So Paul is basically saying this. You have a higher citizenship of that of, that of Rome. Sure, that's neat. That's important. That's cool. But you have a higher citizenship even than that. You are citizens of heaven. Just as your Roman citizenship affects the way you practically live on an everyday basis, even more so, your heavenly citizenship should affect the way that you live life in the empire. All right, here's a key point in all of this. We totally misunderstand this verse if we interpret it to mean that, okay, what Paul's saying, we're, to be, we're citizens of heaven, this isn't our home, so we're just supposed to idly wait around for Jesus to return. So if that's your idea of what it means to be heavenly focused, if it means that you are of no earthly good, that is not what Paul has in mind. He actually has the opposite in mind. And this is why context is so important if you're, you're, you're with me, if you're tracking with me. Being a colony works the other way around from that you know, typical understanding that, all right, he heavenly citizenship, um, we just idly wait around. We don't, we don't act. We just wait for Jesus to return. We retreat. Um, it actually works the exact opposite. You see that? How does it work in the, the exact opposite way? Because what happens is the Roman colony influences how you live in the present. And so what Paul is really saying is, Go deeper into the world. Engage the world more deeply in such a way that more and more, at least your lifestyle and what is around you begins to match heaven realities more and more. So Paul is not calling the Philippians out of the world. He's actually, actually calling them to a greater sense of responsibility in the world. Here's another way of summarizing this, and this is going to sound really provocative, and I left, if I left it by itself, it would be really confusing, so I'm not going to do that, but I'll make the statement first, and then I'll clarify. Christianity is not about going to heaven. Christianity is about heaven coming to earth. From the beginning of the end of the biblical story, story it is clear all the way through. And so what Paul wants from the Philippians is for them to be so influenced by God's intention, so influenced by heavenly realities that the way they live in the world, the way they engage their neighbors would be shaped by that. You might say, well, what about this idea of, there, there is a sense in which we go to heaven when we die, right? If we, we know Christ. Yes, but that is a temporary state. 
Because at the end of time, the end of the biblical story, Revelation ends with Jesus bringing heaven to earth, with the resurrection of the body. And we even get that language from Paul as he wraps up um, this section. Who will, uh, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He's talking about the resurrection of the body. That is the goal. The goal is the transformation of God's good world that has fallen. The goal is resurrection. It's not physical is bad, spiritual is good. It's about spiritual reality transforming the physical realities back into what they were supposed to be according to God's good design. That's the intention here. All right. As we wrap up, let's, we've done a lot of big theology, big picture theology. Let's try to, to make some of this practical. Uh, In my preparation this week, I came across this statement by a pastor commentating on this particular verse, and he said this, this world ultimately is not your home. You are only visiting here. Your true home and your true citizenship is in heaven. Yes and no. I, I would have to know more about what he means there, because there's danger here. There's danger to lead us into this uh, to, to, to deny God's good creation, right? And we've already seen that that's not what Paul has in mind here. And so we need to be careful. But let's go back to the early church. I actually shared this um, several weeks ago. Actually, it was when we were talking about uh, chapter 1, verse 27, that verse that I referred us back to. Uh, this comes from Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity. He said, when disaster struck, the Christians were better able to cope. Had classical society not been disrupted and demoralized by these catastrophes, Christianity might never have become so dominant a faith. What is the idea there? Well, it was in the context of the Roman Empire when illnesses, when disasters struck, people fled. But the Christians did not flee. Their citizenship is in heaven. Now, it might be confusing first if you're operating from the old way of thinking about this verse. Well, You would think that they would retreat. They would protect themselves, but that's not what it means to be a citizen of heaven. It actually means that you seek to go into the world to bring the rule and influence of heaven around you. And so this actually was an incredible opportunity for the Christians. And as Rodney Stark points out, it's one of the, without that happening, Christianity would have not have grown in the way that it did. It basically gave Christianity the opportunity to show itself off. My question for us is, What are we doing with our opportunities to show Christianity off in the world around us? We get this verse 20 terribly, terribly wrong. There's another um, important thing, detail, that I want to point out here. What else would have been expected as normal custom in Philippi to match what was happening in Rome itself? veneration, worship of Caesar as Lord and Savior. And so when Paul says, all right, your citizen, Roman citizenship, fine, that's, that's nice, that's neat, not, it's not unimportant, but you have a citizenship that is even more important, a heavenly citizenship, and your Savior is not Caesar. You are, you are awaiting your Savior from heaven who will one day return to transform your lowly body. And by lowly, it doesn't mean Um, physical is bad. It means fallen, decaying. That's what it means by lowly. Jesus will make our bodies look like his glorious body. 
But when Paul makes the jump from heavenly citizenship to awaiting the Savior from heaven, it's actually an issue of worship. Caesar is not your king, Paul is saying. Caesar is not your Lord. Jesus Christ is. Be clear about separating the two. Now, I'm not talking, I'm not getting into the separation of church and state. That's not what I mean by this. I'm not going down that road. I'm just clear, I'm just saying that this is an issue of worship. And what has plagued us American Christians so badly throughout our history is our inability sometimes to distinguish the two. Because what has happened in our country um, in particular is that for many Christians, we've been power hungry. And we've walked away from Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that that example of Jesus coming as a servant. We've strayed from that, and we've sought power. And we've tried to have an influence on the culture around us through power. And when we feel like we're not getting that, we feel persecuted, or we um, have this sense of God is holding something good back from us, but God has never promised us that, and God never told us to pursue influence in that way. We don't worship how things are done in the American empire. Just like Paul was saying, we don't worship the way things were done in the Roman empire. We have a completely different frame of reference, a completely different perspective. We worship Jesus. He ultimately is our good and faithful ruler. And our calling as his people is to influence the world around us in the way that he calls us to influence it. Um, I've shared many stories over the last couple years of how helpful it has been for me to go to West Africa and learn from African Christians. We have so much to learn from Christians in the other part of the world. And we In our arrogance, we think that the other world has so much to learn from us when it comes to Christianity, and the reality is is that we need to share with each other, right? We need to learn from each other, but we have so much to learn from Christians in other parts of the world. And what we have to learn, ultimately, is how to influence the world around us. It's not through craving power, It's not through seeking the the God of our bellies. It's through laying our lives down for the good of the world around us, that the world might know Jesus, that the world might really know Jesus. Not the values of our country necessarily, but the values of the kingdom of Jesus. They're, They're separate, all right? We can't mix that up. This is so important for us to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus, just as it was for the Philippian believers, it is for us today. And so let me leave you with with these final thoughts. What should this vision do for us? What should this vision of the heavenly perspective do for us? It should liberate our imaginations. It should free us from slavery to, uh, to the influences of the horizontal realm, the horizontal plane. And it should give us an imagination for what it would look like for God's kingdom to come to life in the world around us. Because this is God's intention from the beginning to the end of the biblical story. It makes sense of the Lord's prayer, right? That God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so may our imaginations be liberated and freed 
to actually dream of what it would look like for God's kingdom to come, for God's kingdom to come to life in the world around us, and for him to actually use us as citizens of this world, yes, but who ultimately have a higher citizenship, a higher authority. It was C.S. Lewis. Uh, we actually, I have this up on the screen as we close. C.S. Lewis, going back to this, this whole tension of um, can you be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good? I think C.S. Lewis really helpfully um, got at this tension. He said this, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of those things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is sincere Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. I think that's really helpful. It's so challenging for us to maintain this heavenly perspective living in the earthly realm, isn't it? That's why we have to seek to regularly have our imaginations transformed, liberated, expanded, whatever terminology you want, want to use. We have to regularly be coming back to the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, how he informs every area of our lives, because without that, we are influenced by something. And so the challenge, the call for us, is to be so heavenly-minded while we are engaging the world around us that inevitably the life of the kingdom extends and flows through us as we engage our neighbors, as we go about our vocations, as we live our everyday lives as ordinary people. May God's kingdom come as God promised. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank, you for, we thank you for being faithful to us, even as we are so often faithless to you. We're really sorry for watering down our faith, for making it less than powerful, um, for not reflecting you in the world as we should. I pray that you would fix our eyes on you, the one who condescended, the one who died a sacrificial death so that we might have life, and the one who was resurrected again. May this give shape to our imaginations. May it give shape to the way that we see the world, we see our own lives, we see our neighbors. Father, I pray that the true power of the gospel in your kingdom would be seen through us, that it would be made visible, and that you would get glory from it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.